Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sarah. And I'm Beth. We are lawyers, mothers, and hosts of the bipartisan podcast, Pantsuit Politics. Just as we differ in political philosophy, we've arranged our lives in very different ways, from our careers to where we live to our choices around marriage and family. But we have more in common than divides us. In a world that increasingly defaults to false dichotomies, we explore the messiness of living wisely. Choices, trade-offs, priorities, and grace of living a nuanced life. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Nuanced Life. We're so glad that you're with us today. We are going to talk about some feedback we received on our money discussion. And then for our main topic today, we're going to talk about stress and pressure as it manifests in the form of teeth grinding and other things. And then we'll end, as we always do, with something inspirational to send you into the rest of the week with. So we got so much great feedback on our conversation about money. Um, again, it's a thing we don't spend enough time talking about, but we clearly all spend a lot of time thinking about. Lacey sent us a really good email talking about the different ways her parents and her husband's parents um, treated money um, as they were kids. And she just talked about that um, her husband's family sort of treated it more as a pot for the family and her parents um saw money in a more sort of individualistic way. And she says, I can see the benefits of having kids understand money and buying things at an early age, but I also think it can cause unnecessary stress about money. And she was wondering how we talk about money with our own kids. I thought this was such an interesting question. I've never framed it up in my mind as that individual versus family pot. Mm -hmm. I can certainly say that I was raised with the notion of money as a family pot. And I think that that is mostly how we are raising our daughters. It hasn't come up a whole lot yet. You know, we're not at that point where somebody's buying gas or something. And I think that in the teenage years, it starts to become a bigger topic. The most important value for me in raising our daughters with money is that money is neutral. It's not good or bad. It's not wrong to care about money. It's also not wrong to not care about money. Like it's just a tool to survive and buy things. It doesn't have inherent dignity or inherent evilness about it. Well, I think the distinction that's so is very class driven for me. And, you know, it's not the way that my family talked about money or thought about money, but I have seen this in other scenarios. And I think this is uh, sort of what she touches on a little bit, which is when there is so much money, when that money comes from an inheritance and will most likely be also passed down through an inheritance, then the way you talk about the pot changes very dramatically. So my parent, I knew my parents had money, but it was their money. Like I knew that they would help me um, in the best that they could, but it was never something I saw as sort of a a family inheritance or an ongoing generational 
pot of money. Do you see the difference? I think there's like within the family, and I think there's this generational thing. Yes, that happens. You're not talking about charitable trusts and no. the, the 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 legacy of the family money. That's right. right. And I think that's like that's a totally different ball game. I think there can be. I think there are things that can be learned from um, sort of approaching money in that way. My family, um, on one side of my family, had um, a substantial amount of money. Like my great-grandparents were pretty successful in their lives, but it was still not enough to like, we're going to talk about how this is the trust for like the great-grandkids and stuff. Like it wasn't that much money. Um, And I think that is a very different way to view and think about money. I, you know, I don't think about money because I don't have enough of it, as something like I'm going to pass down to my kids. Like, I definitely think about it as it's a very present and near future concern. I do think about sort of the stress of money conversations. My husband remembers um, feeling very stressed in the way in which his parents talked about money. And it's really interesting because, and I don't, I don't know if it's that neutralness you're talking about, because I definitely grew up and I knew that we did not have a lot of money. Like, that was something that I was aware of. But it was never a source of stress for me as a child, like my parents did a very good job of conveying to me that like this was an outside circumstance. This was not a threat to me in any way, shape or form. Even when I couldn't have things I wanted, um, it was never presented as a like I just I don't ever remember thinking about it in a stressful way, even though I definitely knew there were times when we did not have money or a lot of extra money, I guess. I agree with that. And I I guess my addition to the money is neutral idea would be if you have that kind of vast wealth, I don't think you should feel um, accomplished because of that or guilty because of mm-hmm. it. And I know people on both sides of that, right? I know people who feel an intense amount of pressure because of the wealth in their family because they don't want to tap into that wealth, right? They want to be self-made, but they feel like they have to exist at kind of the same level. I remember a lot of conversations about that in college. I want to make my own way, but I also need to make my own way and be able to hang with all the money in my family, right? And that's that's hard. I That's a problem I'll never struggle with, but I understand that it's a problem. And on the other side of it, you know, we went to college with people who had lots and lots of money and who were in the classic way, born on third, and thought they hit a triple because of it. And so <sighs> I just think it's – I think it's neutral – And I think that making sure that your kids don't feel stress about it is really important because because, look, if your kids feel stress about it, you're teaching them that money should have an outsized influence in life, that money should be the defining characteristic of their life. And whether you have a lot of it or you don't, that's not how we should exist. Um, It's so hard, though, to say that that say that money is neutral. Like I would have I think, I, you know, you and I saying that's one thing, but I think I would have trouble looking at somebody who lives in poverty and being like money is neutral. Well, I don't mean what I mean is like I I think I could say that somebody in poverty money is neutral. You're not a bad person because you don't have it. Oh, that's that's what what you mean. mean. Like linking it to your value. Yes. Yeah. Because it did, it's not, you know, because because I think the reason I struggle with that is it's like it's not neutral. It's really important to life. <laughs> it's just not important to your worth. That's what you mean. It's not important to your worth. And it is important in the circumstances of your life. But you can make a lot of you can make a whole range of choices about that that are all valid choices. I was listening to Super Soul Conversation, which, by the way, this is just going to become a thing. Y'all might want to get like super soul conversation bingo cards because I'm like in a deep dive. I'm going through all of them. I just got I got a wild hair and decided I was listening to it when it first came out and then I stopped for a while and now I'm like going through all of them. So anyway, I was listening to Jimmy Carter and he this which was a totally beautiful super soul conversation. 
And he was talking about Habitat for Humanity and how in part of his work as an ex-president, he realized like the most simple thing, which is that people in poverty um, have the same worth. They love their children as much as we do, that there's nothing different about them and how he had to learn that through one-on-one experiences with people in very poor situations in our country and in other countries. And I just thought that was like such a simple thing that like we don't really express out loud to our kids or even to ourselves. And that's so true of all areas of money. Like the thing about what we're the sort of undercurrent of what we're saying is how do we teach our kids about money? Well, you have to decide how you feel about money. And I'm not sure any of us take the moment and the careful consideration to think, what do I think about money? How do I think about money? What was I taught about money? Is that true? Do I think it's true? Or my life experiences say it's true? Like, it's just a hard thing to sort of take a step back because almost more than anything else, I think that that is the the currency, pun intended, of our culture. Um, Wealth is the market consumerism, capitalism, like it's just, it's the air we breathe. And it's, it's, it's like the, my favorite story. The two fish are swimming along and the older fish says, good morning, boys. What's, how's the water? And the little fish looks at the other fish and says, what's water? Like, I think we do that with money. We forget like it's the water we swim in and we have to think consciously how we feel about it um, and what it means and um, the messages we're told about. It's really hard. It's just really, really hard. It influences a lot of other things though. The the thing that I have given a lot of consideration to that money is an aspect of is entitlement. Mm -hmm. So my parents did a great job teaching me that you're not entitled to an inheritance. There were some really ugly situations in, in our family of people arguing over not even very much money. Oh, my husband says that the less there is to fight over the harder people fight. That's right. He's seen it a million times. That's right. And so I've, I don't feel that I owe an inheritance to my children. I don't feel that I owe my children a college education. I don't feel that I owe my children a car or gas. Now, I might choose to help them with those things, but I don't feel like that's my responsibility. And I don't think that my parents felt it was theirs either. They chose to help me with those things, but I always got the message that they could unchoose that, Mm -hmm. right? And that that was all dependent on sort of my choices and what I was working toward and their willingness to support what I was working toward because of everything else in my life. And that's, I think that's how we, I think Chad and I have talked enough about that concept that that sort of sets how we deal with, with like Jane and money. So Jane is seven And most of the time, we don't even have a conversation with her about who's paying for something. But when it gets to like we're on a vacation and she wants a souvenir, that's when we say, well, you know, you brought your money from whatever. And if you want this, you can get it because she's not entitled to that. And then it becomes, I think, a good decision making point for her. Ooh, do I want this enough to spend my money on it or could I spend my money on something else? And so I feel like entitlement is more the driver of how we parent around money, at least right now. Do you have allowances? No, we do not do allowances and we will not do allowances. Now, why do you not do allowances? Because I want Jane to know that helping in the house is part of it's a responsibility of being part of our family. Oh, absolutely. I don't link it to chores. You just get it. Yeah. And I and I'm also just not interested in giving her money like I think it's. Um, we, we buy a lot of things for her and she can manage her own money when it comes in from grandparents and other sources. She's interested in babysitting when she gets older. I think that's phenomenal. And I hope that she does. 
I'm just, I'm not going to pay her to just live here and be my child. <laughs> um, we do the a dollar per age um, every other week, but it's so funny because it's all digital. So they don't really think about it that much. Um, so they know that like we have an app on my phone that keeps up with it. And so they know how much is in there. Griffin right now is saving for a Nintendo Switch, which he desperately wanted over Christmas, which all of his friends received and which I said no to. One of his friends said I was ruining Christmas for him. Fun, fun talk. Um, so we do it, but I don't link it to charts. So I, I think you're, I don't, I'm not an, I don't, I'm not going to pay you. You live here. You need to take out the garbage. You need to um, do the dishwasher. Like that's just a part of everybody in a family helps out. And I'm not going to pay you to do that. So it's not linked to chores, but I do think like we ended up doing it after much con- careful consideration because I did want them to have some money just to um, figure out how to use it and how to save it and deal with it. And they just don't get a lot of cash from like family members, probably because they live here and they just buy, take them to the store store and let them pick out what they want. So um, that's the way we do it. But it's so funny because they like really just don't think about it until they get to the store. And then I'm they're like, how much money's in my account? <laughs> How much money is in my account? I need to figure out a way to do like um, to delineate different little. I love the little um, where you do the jars. And so you have saving, spending, giving, and they dally it up into jars. But ours is all digital. So I haven't really figured out a great way to do that. But um, I think that allowance is a super interesting way and experiment to see how your kids handle money. Yeah, we probably accomplish that same effect because our girls do tend to get cash and gift cards from people for holidays. And so they they have, you know, for seven and two, they've got plenty of cash to think <laughs> through how they're going to spend it, when they're going to spend it. And I and I like that it's not an ongoing conversation. It just comes up when it comes up, you know, in those occasions when it's like, well, we're not going to get this for you. If you want it, then then you have a decision to make. It, it is a good conversation. And so I can see why if your kids aren't getting cash for holidays and stuff, you would do that to give them that same experience. Well, and it's so interesting with the entitlement conversation because it just gets harder and harder because the reality of the situation is that, you know, as an adult, I look around and I have friends and acquaintances and people in my life who got a leg up because their their parents did feel as if they were entitled to help, to investments, to savings, to um, pay for college, just, you know, and it's so hard as a person who sort of feel, can can see firsthand, um, definitely during our time at Transy, the advantages of your parents helping you. Like, that's one of my biggest, I think the best arguments for not to get into politics, the universal basic income in which basically everybody gets money. One of the best arguments I heard for it was a union guy that says like, it just, it gives you the help that most middle-class people experience from their parents, which is you just have a buffer to like go try something or start a business or because you know, there's going to be somebody there that sort of got your back and is paying the most basic living expenses. And so, you know, it's really hard. I think a lot about the the sort of upper middle class opportunity hoarding that people have written about recently. And, you know, you just it's, when you come up against your values, when it when you're when it's your actual children and you it's easy to talk a big game and say, like, I don't want to my you know, I don't believe it that you're entitled to this. Then to look at situations in which your children will arguably dis- be disadvantaged because you could not or would not give them that advantage in comparison to some of their peers. It's hard. I think our generation has some really big decisions to make about that, too, because your brain, I feel myself thinking, okay, so here's a very practical example of what I'm struggling with. 
Jane loves cheerleading and gymnastics. She loves it. She is she does round offs throughout our house constantly. It is clear to me that she's having fun. She's learning something. She's getting strong and flexible. There are so many good things happening for her. It is also a lot of time and money that we're spending on cheerleading and gymnastics. And her competitions are about to start, which means now we're going from two nights a week of practice to spending Sunday in the middle of nowhere, Ohio, for a, a seven-year-old to compete in a competition. And that and to seems pay money bananas to, do it. to me. And you're paying and, yeah. money to do it. <laughs> yeah. And we bought the uniform and we bought the shoes and all the things. And I think that seems nuts. Now, she is excited. And I am happy about the things she's learning. I'm happy that some nights she doesn't want to go to practice. And then she realizes when she gets there that she's happy that she's there. And then it's important for her to be there because she's part of a team. There are so many wonderful things about this. And I also feel like it just crosses a line into too much for her age. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's going to get harder the older that she gets. And so sometimes I think to myself, well, let's take... Let's take a break after this session. Let's not cheerleading it again for a while and then come back to it. And then I hear in my brain, but if that's going to be her thing, she could lose that time. And then Mm. she's going to be behind everybody and she's not going to be really good at it. And I feel like we're all kind of wired that way because of what we've learned about college and scholarships and resumes and how competitive the world is. I feel like that's that upper middle class thing kicking in, right? My kid has to do this and be serious about it and be the best at it. And this is all essential to her actually having a job someday and a house and being able to support herself, which is just not true, right? And there's there's a craziness embedded in all of that that is really hard to shake loose. But I think that people our age need to start figuring out how to shake some of that loose. How can she do this thing that's great for her body and her mind and that teaches her some good lessons, but that also gets her to bed at a reasonable time that doesn't cost hundreds of dollars a month? You know, we've got to find some balance. I feel like that is our work. Those of us between like 30 and 40, we need to figure out how to restore some balance to kids and extracurricular activities and this whole sense of what are we supposed to be doing to, quote, set our kids up for success? Yeah. I'm really proud. There was a moment in Paducah with a lot of my friends. And I don't have, obviously, the little girls. But I had a lot of friends who had little girls who wanted to dance. And the dance companies are just bananas. It's traveling. The costumes are absurd amounts of money. Absurd amounts of money. And you have to do it, and it's all this time, and it's more money, more competition. It's just the increasing pressure, which we're going to talk about in a minute. And so they were like, okay, our daughters want to dance. There has got to be a better way. So they went to our local um, theater company who has a pretty extensive education children's department. They were like, please help. And so the market house just basically was like, okay, cool. So we'll do plain old dance classes, wear whatever you want. We'll have a, a, a nice reception like recital, wear whatever you want, reasonable amount of money, like totally low key, and the I girls get to dance. And I was like, genius, we need some awards. Where I need some awards to give out because these people deserve them. Like I think that's the thing too is like it's not like we always put it in these false binaries. Like your kids have to do this or they'll lose. Or maybe there's just another way. Like is there a third path here? Is there a third path where we can invest in our kids and, you know, set them up for success but not necessarily success defined outside of our own personal values, I guess. 
I've been talking to Chad about how much I would love for us to figure out a way to start a co-op around extracurricular activities. That's exactly what you're saying, right? And our idea has been, what if you get this group together and then it's not just one thing, it's whatever skills the parents have to teach. So yeah. maybe one weekend they're playing soccer and one weekend they're painting. And like you can you can get well-rounded kids who build a community among themselves who learn that sometimes I'm on this team and sometimes I'm on the team with somebody else, right? And it's, yeah. it's just a whole bunch of different values and you're keeping them active and learning things, but it isn't so intense. That's kind of my dream. I haven't figured out how to make that work yet, but... I'm working on it. Well, and they're playing because, like, what you see, especially with sports, is they say, like, you know what? Every basically soccer storm, particularly, like, even when you look at baseball, why they're from, like, third world countries, because they don't have competitive freaking baseball leagues and the kids play in the street and invent new ways to play the game. And that's an advantage, not having adults stand over you telling you exactly the correct way to do it. That doesn't make you an amazing player. That just makes you somebody that listens to directions. You know, like, it was really, I read a really interesting piece on this one time about all the different professional sports and especially like look at basketball if you have a lot of players coming playing on um coming from lower economic backgrounds where they're playing in places where it's not competitive leagues they're playing out on the streets you know like that's where people learn to love the game learn to think about the game in their own and bring their own personal touch to the game not with an adult telling up hanging over and being like you got to do this so we can win yes exactly well we also got a comment from lisa about the money episode and she was referring specifically to my comment that I sort of changed the game in our marriage because of my priorities around money. And she said, it reminds me of an episode of House where a woman has schizophrenia and didn't tell her husband because it was under control. When it is no longer under control and he finds out about it, he says something like, this isn't the woman I married. House responds with something along the lines of, I hate it when people say that. Just because you didn't know this about her doesn't mean it isn't her. As someone with a mental illness, I appreciate this, but I think it applies more broadly. We are always becoming who we are. Even if we ourselves didn't see a big change coming, it is not as though we have swindled our partners. Maybe it needs to be in our vows more explicitly, but I think what we have agreed to is for better or for worse for who you are and who you will become. And I thought that was so beautifully said. I love that. Also, I just love House and Hugh Laurie, so I'm a little biased. But I think that's a great point. Like, again, I think it speaks to this, like, we want to consume. We want to, like, we bought our partners as a product um, and that they're supposed to say the same. It's like a very consumerism mindset to look at a partnership, when that's not what it's about at all. Like the point is to enter into a partnership, or the point for me anyway, is to enter into a partnership where the people get better and understand each other on a deeper level and grow and are committed. And what does commitment mean in the face of maybe not understanding the person or the person changing in a real way? That's 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 part of the game, y'all. That's the best part. Yeah, there's no reason to get married if growth isn't a part of that, for sure. Definitely. Otherwise, you're just locking down the present. <laughs> There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. So next we are going to discuss stress and pressure and Sarah's fixation on the epidemic of teeth grinding and clenching that is consuming America. It's an epidemic. So I've decided we have a me too moment on fancy politics. And so I've decided we're going to start the Bruxism beat. 
where every week we check in on people's uh, clenching and grinding. I just think, look, the the polling that we did on our social media channels, first of all, the highest percentage of people who grinded or clenched was on Twitter. Accident? I think not. Um, so I think that is, it was like 65% on Instagram, a little lower on Facebook, and then like 85% on Twitter or something. So there's too many of us. And so many people had stories of like their their dentist pe- saying people like, it's like taken off. Like it's just out of control. I used to get like one, I would get one of these mouth guards for a patient a month. And now I'm getting like six every two weeks. Like it's just, we got to talk about this. Everybody is stressed out. <laughs> but what's frustrating for me is I don't feel stressed out. I was talking to my um, massage therapist who does dry needling. Okay, fun fact. I got my actual jaw dry needled. She stuck acupuncture needles into my masseter muscle that has some of the problems, which hurt. I'm not going to tell you it didn't hurt. It hurt. But then she took it out and it felt so much better. So that helped a lot. So if you want to try that for some of your clenching. But I was telling her, I'm like, I don't feel stressed. And she was like, I know, you're just, you know, every day you're having a blast every day. And I'm like, I am. And she's like, well, listen, stress doesn't have to make you sad. And I'm like, hmm. I'm going to think on that one a little bit. Say that again. She said stress doesn't have to make you sad. Yeah, I think that's right. Right? I mean, there's good stress. Right. You can be having a good time. But I still feel like even though I have, you know, all these things that I love to do, my body is telling me like, listen, sister, you're going to have to scroll it back a little bit. So I have I'm doing the legs at the wall. That really helps. Um, one of our listeners reported that her doctor suggested diffusing lavender oil. Got my diffuser ordered. I've been doing meditation and yoga, some journaling. I'm throwing all the things at it, so I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly which one works. But I've just also been thinking more sort of like bigger about stress in our lives and stress in my life. And I think one of the biggest things that that I've realized is like, I have all this pressure, but as the pressure has increased in my life, first of all, I'm very terrible at saying like, okay, I've introduced this new thing. So I maybe need to offload something. I just keep onloading. Um, so I'm trying to think through that. And also I'm not really good. Like I'm, I'm a good person at dealing with stress, but I don't like, I have my little techniques, but I don't really sort of scale them up as my stress scales up. You know what I mean? Like I'm not I'm not proportionate. I'm not adaptive to the level of stress in my life, which makes sense. Like the more we the more we get stressed, the less likely we are to be like super calm headed and be like, how can I deal with my stress? Such a vicious cycle. So we all just end up clenching our teeth all night long. I think the truth is that probably none of the things that you listed individually are like the cure for teeth grinding Mm -hmm. or teeth clenching. But what came to mind for me as you were talking about the lavender and the legs at the wall and everything is a passage that I just read from Richard Rohr about how we are a ritually starved culture. Mm, we like don't that. really allow ourselves markers of time and the ability to process what's happened to us. That's some yes. of what you're talking about with onboarding new things in your life and and not pausing to commemorate those. I know that I don't feel the sense of closure about having left my job that I wish that I felt. And I think some of that is because there's not really a ritual around that. Like mm-hmm. I've been thinking, should I like take myself to a body of water and burn something? Like what <laughs> should I do? Yes, you should. That sounds fun. I want to be part of that. And I think that's that. right. I mean, there is something to having a a symbolic 
ceremonial way to commemorate the things that are happening, happening to you. And for me, like I have really gotten myself into when I light a candle, it means something to me. Mm -hmm. I finished working on something that was important to me. I'm going to light a candle and I'm just going to take that second to say, I'm celebrating that this just happened. And then when you blow the candle out, there's something to that too. And I know that all sounds like woo woo and ridiculous, but I feel like some of what's coming through our jaws is this absence of processing. Yeah. Well, and I think about how I went from no children to three children, including a lost pregnancy in under 10 years. Every time was a new life. Every time. And I don't mean like a new person. I mean, a new life for me. Mm -hmm. And I think so much of that, like we think a baby again, because we're consumer of consumerism assessed. We think we've made the baby shower all about the products and not about celebrating and processing and grieving our own lives and and supporting and thinking about the way that our lives are going to change when we become parents. And, you know, it just happens so fast and we don't give ourselves the time to breathe or process it. And I, you know, think about all the big, massive things my friends and I have gone through in the last five years and how they just, it just feels like you can never catch your breath. Like you can never just take a, and, and maybe it's because we, we have turned ritual into something so big, we can never sort of capture it like the only rituals left in our lives are like marriages and funerals well it doesn't have to be that big you know what I mean like if we need to find a way to like s- grieve what's lost and celebrate what's coming um for the small things and not even small things like you know moving or the death of a parent or the like I said an adding an additional child to your life or a child starting school all these things like there's such huge transitions and we don't um, give ourselves time to process them. And I, I think I'm better than most. I have a lot of traditions. We do a lot of traditions in my life, to in our, in our family, to mark important passages, to think about that, that we're at this part of the year again. I do a lot of um, journaling and scrapbooking around Christmas. I do. I try to do those things. And still I feel and feel like my body's trying to tell me, like, it's too much. It's too much right now. You've got you've to give me some time. Yeah, I think that our, like, the American life right now feels like one long, uninterrupted continuation. There aren't seasons. Mm -hmm. We don't live seasonally. The food we eat doesn't necessarily change season to season. The hours we work doesn't change season to season. You know, we're, we're artificial lighting, temperature control. Everything about what we're doing just is factory-like, right? It's a factory that never shuts down and we just keep moving. Somebody dies, maybe we get two days off to fly to the funeral and fly back and then get to work the next day. Yeah. We have a maternity leave for the shortest period of time possible so that we can feed the baby and sleep a little bit. And then we're right back to it. We're always just right back to it with our jobs. How how many people get to take sabbaticals anymore? Oh, I think sabbaticals I give, are so important. I would give anything for a sabbatical. Anything. You know, and, and we just we don't have anything that sort of ebbs and flows in our lives. And I honestly think that's why we're grinding our teeth. Yeah. Well, and I mean, think about even the physical seasons for so many of us are so disrupted and out of whack because of climate change. Like we don't, we know, we have warm Christmases and freezing cold Julys and we're all 
Um, not to mention, I mean, not to go total woo-woo, like electricity disrupted us like 100 years ago. I'm not really sure we ever got over that. You know, like we can't even go with the flow of the sun and the moon anymore because we have lights that can keep us on, particularly little glowing lights in our hands from our cell phones, which I think also contribute uh, social media and all that into this sort of consistent, constant pressure we feel. I have decided, I'm going to put this public so I stick to it, I've decided to give up social media for Lent because I do feel like I've been on this fast-moving train, particularly with regards to social media, for at least six years, and I'm exhausted. And I love social media. I love Facebook. But, you know, because I was a blogger before I was a podcaster and because it's so content-driven, I'm just tired. I'm really, really tired of thinking through every moment in my life as in as it that like the Instagram image I'm going to post and, and waiting with bated breath to see what all these people are going to say about it. Like, it's just taxing me psychically. And, you know, I think so often this this drive that you feel in our in our, the undercurrent of our culture to simplify and minimalize and con Marie, our stuff is a hunger to get rid of stuff so that we can see those cycles in our lives, so that we can breathe and look around and perceive the intense changes. You know, we're still pretty simple creatures and we're asking our monkey brains to do a whole, whole, whole lot of things all at once. I am beyond grateful that I am not driving to work in the dark this winter. Mm. The way that it depressed and just screwed with my brain to be on the road when it was pitch black in the winter was awful. I mean, it was awful. Mm. I physically feel better not making myself do that. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really powerful about that. I think social media is part of the problem, too, because it just feeds that continuation. There's not a time when everybody goes off. It's just, it's like being in Las Vegas. Social media yeah. is Las Vegas in our hands. Oh, right? it's so true. In our it heads. Forget our hands. Going. <laughs> I've our been heads. trying for the last week or so because I have some fatigue about this, too. I think in a different way than you. I don't post as much personally. For me, it's more the pressure of responding to people who interact with our podcast. And I love those people and I love that conversation, but it is wearing on me a little bit. So I've been trying to think of it more like the mail. I'm going to have a time a day when I check the mailbox. I'm going to, I don't have to respond to everything that's in it ever. And especially right now. And then I'll leave it and I'll move on. And I'm more productive that way. I also just feel more settled that way. I think this is the bedtime thing, too. If you're looking at your phone right before you go to sleep, you haven't given yourself any space to mm-hmm. wind down. And and I do think that we just are overestimating our capacity mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually to just keep going all the time. And I, and I used to get so mad at people mainly my mother and my grandmother, who would be in my face all the time. You're doing too much. You're doing too much. You're doing too much. It just, you know, as a woman and as a highly educated woman, it just, it always pissed me off. It just did. And I'm just realizing like, oh, as much as it pains me to admit it, they were right. I'm doing too much. And I just, because I don't want to miss anything, right? It's so driven by fear of missing out which goes back to our conversation about our kids. Like, I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to, um, like I said, I need the, like, towel of Daniel Tiger. <laughs> if your friend doesn't want to play with you, you can find something else to do. I'm going to keep repeating that to myself. Because, again, everything I see, I feel and see from the culture is don't miss out. You miss out, you might, you know, miss a minute, miss a lot, right? 
I don't have fear of missing out at all. I never Ugh. have. What I don't I know have, how you do that. <laughs> well, I what to- I have is fear of am I contributing enough? Mm. Am I sitting on something that could be helpful to someone and oh, holding no, that, that back in a, you know, in a way that's a problem? Yeah. And honestly, like every time I see my therapist, I, I feel like I'm there principally for him to say, you are doing enough. You don't need to do anything else right now. You're contributing enough. You're using the gifts that you have enough. There's don't add. There's nothing yeah. else to add. And it's really validating to me. And I need to hear that. Yeah, that's hard because I just I think that, you know, you say that to me pretty often because it just it, when you're a person who's engaged in the world, it's like you look at Puerto Rico and you're like, oh, I don't know. Am I doing enough? <laughs> right. And I'm, I'm like super sitting comfortably in my home. I'm super good at seeing that for other people. I think all of us struggle to see it in ourselves. I think we all need someone to say to us, no, you're, you're enough. You got it. One of the best things that I've um, ever heard in, the, in a therapy appointment was after I lost the pregnancy, I was so hard on myself. And I would say things to myself that I would never, ever say to a friend, like basically like you had one job and you failed. You had one job, which was to get the baby here and you didn't do it. And like, why are we dressing this up? That's what happened. Why are we pretending something else happened? That's what happened. And I would talk to my therapist and she'd be like, would you say that to your friend? Would you look at your friend and say that to her? And I was like, well, no. She's like, well, why are you saying that to yourself? And I think there's so many good Things out there like Tara Sophia Moore does a really great thing about like just envision yourself in 20 years. How do you how would she speak to you? You know, like if you sat down at the end of the day and sort of had a moment with yourself 20 years older, would we all be grinding our teeth to powder if we had a kind older self to be like, hey, you're on the right track. You're doing the best you can. Like just to hear that. And it's you're right. It's so easy to say that to other people and so hard to say to ourselves. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So in conclusion, we need to live (laughs) seasonally. We need more ritual. Yeah. (laughs) We need to know that we're doing enough. And I think all these things together can help our jaws. Oh, bruxism beat. So follow up. If you have good seasonal or daily rituals that have really helped you, we would love to hear them because I could read about that kind of stuff all day long. It's my favorite kind of interesting thing, things that people find or people, a way that people find to interact with their days or their families and to find that rhythm. Share it because I love that stuff. I totally agree. And Sarah, I wanted to see if next week, I think a good tie in here is to come back to loneliness. There have been a couple of really great articles about the physical effects of loneliness lately, and we Mm -hmm. got so much good feedback the first time we discussed it. So if it's okay with you, I think that's what we should do in our next episode. Yeah. Brene Brown did that amazing sermon at the National Cathedral, and she talked about loneliness. So yeah, I think that's a great topic. So stay tuned. So we always end the show with a piece of inspiration for you to take through your week. And I found... Um, this reading and one of our Richard War emails, 
Yeah, I know. We do use Richard Rohr a lot, but y'all, it's so good. We can't just not use it because we use it all the time. And this one, um, they were going through the Beatitudes, which I really, really loved, um, sort of piece by piece. And this one was talking about um, righteousness. And as a person who often cites righteous anger as her favorite emotion, this really spoke to me. My friend John Deere, who has spent his life in the struggle against the injustice of violence, writes about this beatitude. Righteousness is not just the private practice of doing good. It sums up the global responsibility of the human community to make sure every human being has what they need, that everyone pursues a fair sense of justice for every other human being, and that everyone lives in right relationship with one another, creation, and God. Jesus instructs us to be passionate for social, economic, and racial justice. That's the real meaning of the Hebrew word for justice and the Jewish insistence on it. Resist systematic, structured, institutionalized injustice with every bone in your body, with all your might, with your very soul, he teaches. Seek justice as if it were your food and drink, your bread and water, as if it were a matter of life and death, which it is. Within our relationship to the God of justice and peace, those who give their lives to that struggle, Jesus promises will be satisfied. How do we hunger and thirst for justice? by making global justice a priority in our lives. This beatitude requires us to join a grassroots movement that fights one or two issues of injustice and to get deeply involved in the struggle. Since all issues of injustice are connected, fighting one injustice puts us squarely in the struggle against every injustice. As Martin Luther King Jr. said over and over again, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Befriend the victims of systemic injustice, side with them, listen to their stories, let their pain break your heart. Join the movements to end injustice, tithe your money to the cause, and commit yourself to the struggle. While it may take a long time, our nonviolent persistence and truth-telling will eventually win out and bear the good fruit of justice. Truth is on our side. God is on the side of justice. The arc of the moral universe is long, Martin Luther King Jr. said famously, but it bends toward justice. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Nuanced Life, and until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all. 